it's not unusual that I'll engage people in a conversation related to God's will. People are trying to sort out, you know, what is God's will for me and this and that. It's what we would refer to as the mysterious will of God. Now, that's a very legitimate discussion, and sometimes it's a very difficult thing to discern. But always in the midst of that discussion, I try to remind ourselves that there is what we call the mysterious will of God. That's what you're searching for. But there's also what we refer to as the revealed will of God, which means God's already made statements in his word. This is my will. And it's very important when you're discerning the will of God to first ask yourself the question, am I already being obedient to the revealed will of God? In essence, if I'm not willing to obey what I already know is the will of God, why would God reveal more of his will to us? So that's what we want to talk about this morning, what I would refer to as the revealed will of God. If you have a Bible, turn with us to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're working our way through 1 Peter. Last week we reminded ourselves that we are living stones being built up to a spiritual house. We are a royal priesthood. We're a chosen race. We're a holy nation. Once not the people of God, but now by the grace and mercy of God, we are the people of God. So then how do we live that way? How do we live as the people of God in a, in a culture of despair? So that's where we pick it up in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Eight times in Peter's epistle, First and Second Peter, well, he reminds them that he deeply loves them, that these are people he deeply cares about and has significant concerns for them. As aliens and strangers, again, this is how he introduced them in uh, the very first part of chapter 1, that as aliens, they are citizens of one country but living in a different country. In this case, most of them are Jewish. They have been driven out of Palestine because of persecution. They're living in Asia Minor, northern Turkey. And as such, they have very few rights or protections. So part of this is just trying to be skillful in living to stay alive. There's a fair amount of persecution. They're under Nero as the emperor. This is about to get much worse. So kind of be like a Christian in maybe one of the Middle Eastern countries today. They need to be very thoughtful and skillful because their very lives are at stake. The idea of strangers carries more the idea of being kind of wanderers, being pilgrims. They just kind of move from place to place. They're transient. Both words were used to describe Abraham and his family en route to the promised land. It's probably why Peter uses the terminology here. But of course, it's metaphoric in the sense that we are citizens of heaven, living out that citizenship on earth, and we need to live it out in a skillful way. 
So he urges them, he pleads with them to abstain from fleshly lusts. Now, he already brought this up in chapter 1. He talked about at one time there were behaviors that defined our lives simply because we were ignorant, because we were in darkness, because we didn't know any better. Isn't necessarily referring to things that are evil so much as it is all of us have natural longings and desires. It's kind of the outflow of of being made as people in the image of God. But when God isn't in the picture, we desperately seek to satisfy those desires in ways that are contrary to the plan of God. As it says in the Proverbs, there is a way that seems right, but the end is devastating. So we try to satisfy those longings and desires in all kinds of ways that ultimately are empty and futile and destructive. Now that makes some degree of sense when we were ignorant, when we were in darkness. But now that we are in the light, now that we know better, then it would be uh, very unwise to go back to those same behaviors. Since this is the second time that Peter has brought this up, there must be some sense that the people are returning back to some of their destructive uh, ways, and he's pleading with them to reconsider that. He says the issue then is that those fleshly lusts wage war against their soul. Peter uses the word soul in the sense of the whole person, uh, the intellect, the emotions, the will. It's not, not specifically that part of us that connects with God, but kind of my whole person. Basically, the summary of what Peter is saying is it's going to be hard enough to live out the value system as the people of God on earth without self-destructing, without waging war against yourself. Why make it that much more difficult by making such poor choices? So that's kind of like step one. This is going to be hard enough without self-inflicted wounds. One other thing about verse 11 that I think is worth noting is the idea of fleshly lusts. Some of your translations have natural desires. That actually is an excellent translation in this context because that is what it's talking about. And that's very important to see that Peter is saying abstain from those desires that come naturally because they wage war against your soul. Because as a culture today, we're very confused about this. As a matter of fact, it saddens me that so many Christians have been persuaded by this argument. The idea is if something is a natural desire, then that must make it morally right. As a matter of fact, some people even push it that if something is a natural desire then that's obviously the way God created me. Therefore, he would want me to pursue that desire. Peter couldn't be more clear. Abstain from natural desires because they wage war against our souls. If you read Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1, basically what he says is because we have exchanged 
the glory of God for the glory of a creature. We have in essence decided to worship the creature rather than the creator. It has made a mess of our natural desires. Paul in essence says this is going to confuse and mess up what we naturally desire, which ultimately is a road of destruction unless we listen to what God has to say. So it's really important to understand morality, right and wrong, cannot be defined by just what I naturally desire. It has to be defined on God's word and what God says is right and wrong. Verse 11 is what not to do. The discussion then moves, verse 12, what we are to do. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So we are to keep our behavior, the word excellent, probably isn't the best translation there. The idea is winsome or attractive. It's the very same message we saw in Proverbs that we should, uh, when, we, when we obey God, we actually make uh, the message of the gospel attractive to people that are seeking and searching. So keep your behavior attractive or winsome to the Gentiles, which is a reference to the unbelievers. Peter's using kind of old covenant language that if we as believers are the people of God, everybody outside of that are the Gentiles. It's not an ethnic reference, it's a uh, spiritual reference. So that in the thing in which they slander you, they may actually, because of your good deeds, ultimately come to Christ. When it says the day of visitation, It is possible to take that as the day of judgment. But almost all scholars believe in this context, it's a reference to their day of salvation. The term is often used that way and makes the most sense here. That's how they glorify God, by ultimately coming into a relationship with Christ. Now, how do you turn a slanderer into a child of God. It's not by words. It's not by social media. It's not by blogging. It's not by winning an argument. It's by engaging in behavior around something that they themselves would say matters in order that by our good behavior, at least some of them will come into a relationship with Christ. Nobody likes to be slandered. Nobody likes to be called names. It's very common in our culture that the unbelieving world slanders Christians. That should not surprise us. The word devil actually means slander. We should expect that. It doesn't mean we like it. But the question is, how do, we, uh, how do we turn a slanderer into a child of God? Answer is by doing good, by engaging in behaviors that matter to them. 
I've said before, it's very hard to hate someone that you're sharing a cup of coffee with. There's something about that 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 changes the relationship. It's equally true that it's hard to continue to slander someone who has actually rolled up his or her sleeves and is engaging in something that you deeply care about. That's in essence what Peter is saying. So then the question arises, well, what what exactly are we talking about when we say good behavior? So he goes on then and talks about good behavior as, as a citizen, good behavior as a slave or a master, good behavior as a husband or wife, and these are all things we're going to look at in the next several weeks. We're going to start with a very non-controversial, easy discussion, and that is submitting to the government. So we pick it up in verse 13. Trust me, it it doesn't get easier. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So the first discussion is, what does it look like to be a good citizen as part of our witness as the people of God? Now, first of all, for some reason, we as a culture have kind of this reaction anytime we see the word submit. And yet we have to recognize we submit in dozens of ways every day. Anybody that runs a business asks his or her employees, to submit. Anybody in the healthcare system, anybody in the school system, anybody in government, you, you can't function without some level of submission. There's an authority structure, whether it's a family or a business or a government, that is necessary to avoid uh, chaos in order to be effective. The word is actually a military term, and it literally means to arrange under. Uh, So it's helpful to think of it that way. It's necessary in the military. It's necessary in business. It's necessary in the church. It's necessary in a family. It's necessary within the structures of government. So submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Basically what he's saying there is a consistent biblical message, and that is government is established by God. There is this reality that because we are sinners and our natural bent is towards selfishness and sin, that even a bad government is better than no government. History is abundantly clear on this, that when there is lawlessness, when there is no government in charge, it does not turn into a utopia. It turns into the law of the jungle. It is a bloodbath, and everyone loses. So even in countries where there is a bad government, there is at least an authority structure that allows people to live some sort of a predictable lifestyle. Certainly a good government's better than a bad government. We also understand there are dramatic differences between a first-century Roman government and a 21st-century American government. This was under the time of Nero. 
So it's probably helpful not to start down the path of, yeah, but you don't know how bad our government is. Trust me, compared to the first century Roman Empire, what we have is absolutely delightful. These were people under the bloody, immoral abuse of Rome. Nero would be the one who would ultimately execute Paul. He's the one who shortly after Peter's letter would execute Peter. He's the one who would up the persecution dramatically. Yet there is an understanding if these people are going to survive and have a life, they need to be skillful as citizens. In their case, kind of fly under the radar. In our case today, we understand it's very different from that. As a matter of fact, for all the complaints and frustrations we have with government, it's worth stopping and reminding ourselves that we as Americans live with a level of peace and prosperity and freedom that probably no people in the history of the world have ever known. And before we complain too much as the church, there is no question that we as the church in 21st century America have more freedom to accomplish our mission than any church has had in the history of Christianity. One day when we stand before God, the one thing we will not be able to say is that we failed in our mission because the government wouldn't allow us to do our job. So for all the kind of frustration and complaining, let's not forget that what we have is really quite remarkable. But it is true, there's differences in, in we have avenues to make changes and to voice our opinion and to have elections and all of that. But it's also probably good to remind ourselves what we mean when we talk about civil disobedience. It seems that there are many people today, including many Christians who are under the impression that we have the right to civil disobedience anytime we disagree with policies or decisions that are made by the government. It's important to understand that is not what Peter is saying. He's saying actually just the opposite, that we need to respect the fact that government is in place by God. And as the people of God, for the Lord's sake, we submit to that. It means that we respect that, that we value that, that we operate as good citizens within the system. Civil disobedience is restricted for those moments when the government requires us as Christians to do something that is immoral or offensive in the eyes of God. At that point, we have to choose faithfulness to God over faithfulness to the government. But it is not an excuse to do as we please and disrespect those in authority every time there's some sort of a decision or policy that is contrary to your opinion. It is interesting that Peter then defines the role of government. And this is a consistent definition in the New Testament. The definition of government 
is the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. This is consistently the definition that the role of government, biblically defined, is to punish evil and to celebrate good. Because of the reality of sin in the world, that authority structure is necessary to punish evil and to celebrate good. Virtually everything else that a government does is up for debate. People can argue the the merits of small government and big government. Those aren't really biblical debates. Those are just kind of civic debates that will be argued by people smarter than me. But at the end of the day, this is the core purpose of government. It is correct to say that when a government reaches a point where it no longer punishes evil, evil as defined by God, and it no longer celebrates good as defined by God, the government is ceasing to be what God intended the government to be. So, you know, the merits of big government versus small government and all those debates uh, will go on and on uh, again and again. However, there is a theological discussion that I think is worth thinking about. There is a theological reason why over the last decades, the government in America has grown larger and larger and larger and larger. It basically goes like this. When we agree together as a people, as a community, that there is absolute truth, that there is an absolute lawgiver, that there is absolute morality, we agree together on what's right and wrong. When that is true, we as a people govern ourselves, which means there is less need for so many laws and policies and regulations to govern behavior. But the more we drift from that, the more we decide there are no absolutes, there is no absolute morality, there is no one standard of right and wrong. Everyone's free to do what is right in his or her own eyes. The more out of control we become, the worse our behavior becomes. As a result of that, there's more and more need to regulate such behavior. It is not a coincidence that as we have become more and more of a secular nation, the government has grown bigger and bigger and bigger. Why is that? There is a response to all the misbehavior in the land to manage it, to control it, to somehow bring it under control. Probably everyone here that owns a business or works in healthcare, in so many areas out in the marketplace in finance, would say you are absolutely being smothered with what seems like unlimited rules and policies and regulations. 
Why is that necessary? It's necessary because the farther we drift from God, the more out of control we get, the more necessary it becomes for the government to try and regulate and control all the misbehavior. So stop and think about it. Why did people choose? I want to be my own God. Why did people choose moral relativism? Why did people want to move away from the idea that there's absolute morality and absolute truth? The answer is they thought it would bring more freedom. Yet here we are decades down the path. What we experience is not more freedom. What we're experiencing is more and more and more bondage, which is exactly what God said would happen. There are often differences of opinion and ideas and beliefs between the generations as it relates to government, government issues, policies, politics, all of that. And that's not necessarily good or bad. It's probably to be expected. But I think it's helpful to at least regain some perspective, especially for the younger generation. If you're like millennial age on down, I'd at least like to offer some explanation for why the older generation maybe sees some of this differently. For you, millennial on down, this is the only America you've ever known. It's just normal to you. You think this is just the way it is. But you have to understand that isn't true for those of us that are older. We have experienced a very different America. And we see how dramatically that has changed. And we grieve that our grandchildren will never know the freedoms that we knew when we were growing up as children. What to you is normal, to us is sad. Let me just illustrate that. I actually grew up in Lincoln, just a couple of blocks from Lincoln High. When we were growing up as elementary age children, during the summer, Saturdays, it was very common that we would wake up in the morning, we would get on our bicycles, we would disappear, and we would come home at supper. We went to the zoo, we went to Antelope Park, we went to the pool, we went to the ball fields, we went all over. This wasn't unusual, we all did that. We all met at different places and did different things together. There was a tremendous sense of innocence and freedom. We all grew up that way, those of us that are older. Think about how dramatically that has changed. Most young parents today are appalled, they're horrified at the thought that your elementary age child could get on a bike and leave home and not come back till supper time. There's parents that won't let their children play alone on the front yard of your own house. We're afraid to even get in our cars and drive down the road for fear of a road rage incident. Somebody will shoot us. I want you to stop and think about how dramatically the world has changed. 
Those of us that are older, we lived in a time when it wasn't like this. And we grieve how dramatically it has changed. And we grieve that our grandchildren will never know the innocence and the freedom and the life that we enjoy. And that's what creates some of our frustration. That's why we see some of the politics and the choices and the government differently. Part of the problem is because of that sadness and that sorrow and that frustration, sometimes turns into anger. It sometimes gets voiced in ways that's not helpful. It's actually rather destructive. It contributes to the problem. It's a reason why some of my generation get kind of fixated on, on the news and politics and government and all that's going on. It's because there's kind of this desperate attempt to bring back the good old days because we know a time when it was different. But sadly, our behaviors are not helpful. They actually just contribute to the problem. I think it's also necessary for our generation, people my age and older, to accept the fact that America has changed. It is not the same, and it will not be the same. There's kind of this desperate attempt to hold on to. A few more elections, get the right people in place, a few changes, and the good old days will be back. I have to tell you, that train left the station, and it is not coming back. And you need to enter into that and understand America's changed. And how we go about reaching our communities has to change. Back in the 80s, there was this movement, mostly of Christians, called the Moral Majority. It was highly political. There was this belief when we'd get the White House and the Senate and the Congress that we would somehow bring back the good old days. Uh, history will show it was largely unsuccessful and disappointing. But think about even the name in those days, the Moral Majority. There was a belief that we are still a majority. If we flex our muscles, we can make this happen. It's widely debated as to whether they were the majority then or not. But it is not debated anymore. We are not the majority. Just because people mark Christian on a census doesn't mean they're Christian in the sense that we're talking about it. When you're talking about people that believe what we're talking about in Peter, people that have been born again, people that God considers the people of God. Most culture watchers, watchers such as George Barna put it at somewhere between 6 and 10%. And we have to realize we're a small minority. This idea that we're going to rally the troops, we're going to flex our muscles, we're going to make this happen. Like I said before, that train left the station. That will never work again. What's necessary is to rethink the strategy. And the strategy is exactly what Peter's saying here. That we roll up our sleeves, we get involved in things in the community that the unbelieving world would say matter to them. And by our good deeds, 
we win them over. And some of them will come to a relationship with Christ. Some of you are thinking, I don't know. I don't don't know that I want to do that. Well, verse 15, for such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. This is what we refer to as the revealed will of God. Simply could not be more clear that this is the will of God by doing right. And right as it's defined in this text are deeds that unbelievers can observe. Verse 12. And by observing, some of them will experience God's salvation. They'll go from critic and slander to child of God. Peter reminds us that yes, it is true in Christ, we have been set free, but we are not free to do as we please. We're not free to rebel. We are free to be a bond slave of God. And what God is asking is that we be good citizens by rolling up our sleeves, getting in the mix, making a difference in the areas that the unbelievers would say deeply matter to them. Thankfully, this is something we do well as a church. Every week, thousands of people disseminate out into the culture in hundreds of different ways and involve themselves in things that deeply matter to our community. If you were to poll our mayor or the police department or leaders within our city, what are the things that really concern you? You would find the people of Lincoln Berean in all of those arenas doing their best to try to make a difference. We just need to keep remembering how very important that is. The research consistently shows that most people today are just talkers. For all the social media talk, the research shows very few of them are willing to commit any time, money, or energy to anything that matters. They just talk. The research also shows that those that talk the most tend to do the least. But it also shows that there is an army of people who very quietly, without applause, penetrate into our communities and involve themselves in the things that ultimately matter as a witness to the fact that we are indeed the people of God. So next time that you are seeking to determine some area of your life, and you're asking, what is God's will for me? The first question to ask is, am I 
already being obedient to the revealed will of God. Because if I'm not willing to be obedient to that, why would God reveal anymore? To abstain from fleshly lusts, rolling up our sleeves and making our message attractive by engaging ourselves in behaviors that the unbelieving world would identify as good. And being good citizens by actually being part of the solution rather than part of the problem in order that people might be attractive to the life-changing message of Jesus. That's God's will for us as the people of God. Our Father, we celebrate this morning that we are your people. But we remember that's not a license to do as we please. It's an invitation to be your bond slave and to be faithful to do what you've called us to do. Lord, may we be the church in this community by rolling up our sleeves, getting in the mix, making a difference. Lord, may the people of this community say that Lincoln is a better place because the people of God were here. In Jesus' name.